Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. One of my favorite categories of HI 101 topics is something I know the audience will likely recognize, uh, Watergate, for example, or Vikings, but that I don't expect much familiarity beyond that recognition. It's fun to take that spark and flesh it out with some more meaningful connections. Today's subject, Spartacus, absolutely falls into that category. So putting aside the I'm Spartacus trope, who was Spartacus and why do you recognize his name? Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Kevin Miller. Hello. And today we're going to be talking about, well, we're going to be talking about the third servile war, which nobody's going to know what that is. Nobody's going to click on that episode title. So we're going to be talking about uh, Spartacus. Is, uh, that's a word I know. Yeah, that's one. <laughs> Can I ask you something real quick before we get going? What's, what's, tell me literally everything you know about Spartacus, please, right now. <laughs> I think you've probably uh, guessed this, but uh, all I know is the meme. <laughs> the I'm Spartacus? Yep, no, I'm Spartacus. That's mm-hmm. literally all I know. <laughs> right, right, right. What it probably means is sort of this sort of uh, protest against sort of collective punishment, and that's literally as far as I know. <laughs> that's a really interesting um, assessment of that scene. Um, because, yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly what's, what's happening. Uh, or, or kind of... Yeah, that's that's more or less what's happening in that scene from the movie from 1960, right? It's a mm-hmm. you know it's this big moment of you know standing in solidarity against oppression and et cetera, et cetera. They, they can't kill all of us. <laughs> well, I, actually, I think it's the other way around. I think they end up all taking the. <laughs> I think they all end up taking the punishment at the end of that movie. But uh, in any case, um, yeah, that's that's mostly what people know. I think when they hear that word, there was also like a TV series. What like. 10 years ago or something like that. I don't think it was nearly as popular as the as the movie from the 60s though. So, yeah, it's it's one of those it's one of those names from history that I think a lot of people recognize and have absolutely no idea why. And I <laughs> thought that would make a really interesting inroad to this uh to this uh story from Roman history. Now, you and I have done Roman history before, right? We did the uh the Punic Wars. Yeah. This is going to be a little over a hundred years after the Punic Wars, but we're still talking like Roman Republic. This is still like pre Julius Caesar, pre like fall of the Republic stuff. So um, we're still talking relatively early Roman history. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like a nice, fresh little bit of a palate cleanser from the last uh, few months of HI 101, something we can uh, (laughs) do quickly and not dwell on too much. So how does that sound? what i'm here for <laughs> fantastic let's talk about slavery in the roman republic 
No good. <laughs> I'm, I'm not joking. That's what we're going to start with. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like you'll you, you kind of hear in passing. You know, yeah, slavery has existed in most societies across history, and yeah, that's more or less true. With Rome, honestly, they're not the worst ones out there. They're not the best ones out there. They're pretty much middle of the road in terms of the way they treated slavery in their in their society. Like, you know, nobody's getting a pass on any of this. But at the same time, you know, it, it was a pretty uh, typical approach to that arrangement, right? In when we're talking, you know, in the period we're talking, so about 100 years BCE, uh, approximately a third of the Roman population would have been uh, enslaved in some form. This is, uh, again, a lot lower than some uh, societies. For example, the Spartans would have had maybe 12% of the population free, the rest being enslaved. Okay. So it's, uh, it's a relatively low number. I, that being said, the way we tend to think about slavery in our society is very much colored by United States chattel slavery, right? And so there's some pretty big differences. Um, for one thing, the number of positions that a slave would hold in society really varies. So yeah, you have people doing like menial labor, uh, you know, uh, working in fields, mining, things like that. But you also have doctors who are slaves or uh, accountants who are slaves. Um, uh, barbers was one that I saw. Like it's a pretty broad swath of society. It's really a lot more about. Well, I, I, I mean, I'm saying this as though it's a small piece of it, but a lot more of the designation of slavery has to do with your like political rights, your civil rights, um, than than other aspects. Right. It it doesn't like immediately denote like a plantation system. It's more about whether or not you have literally any legal rights and how you're being paid for your uh, uh, labor, if you're being paid at all. And a lot of that's going to just depend on uh, where you're from, what your skills are, who owns you, things like that. A small minority of people would be held in slavery over debt. So you could temporarily enter slavery to pay off debts to somebody if you couldn't do it monetarily. Like an indent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you'd uh, you'd say like, listen, I can't pay this, but instead, why don't I work for you as a slave for you know five years or whatever? And then at the end of that term, uh, once you had you know, you'd enter into a contract, and once you're at the end of that term, then you would regain your freedoms. That's a pretty small percentage of them. The other uh, way you could end up in slavery is uh, you could sell your children into slavery to again pay for those debts. Um, mm -hmm. But the vast majority are citizens of other nations who were captured in warfare. If you remember when we talked about uh, the Punic Wars, there were Rome went through a period of like massive expansion right around the Punic Wars, right? They went from a pretty middle power in the Mediterranean to basically the dominant power in the Mediterranean. And every single one of those wars that they fought, not only are they capturing like enemy soldiers, they're also capturing civilians, bringing them back to Rome. And part of the way that Roman soldiers were paid in that time was uh, through the division of spoils. So if your army unit won a battle, they would, you know, loot the general area. You would get like literally like any actual treasure. So, you know, gold and silver, but then you would also capture people, sell them into slavery and they would uh, take the profits and divide them up. And so as a soldier, that's how you're being paid for fighting. Okay. 
because Rome was uh, growing so quickly uh, in that time period, there was a, a massive influx of slaves into the market. And it, it really was a key factor in Rome's uh, growing economy at the time. So in addition to uh, like conquest and gaining land and actual physical, like fungible riches, you were also rapidly expanding your population and uh, slaves specifically. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, you're not necessarily, even, even in this um, method of entering slavery, you're not necessarily stuck there forever. There is a path to citizenship that exists. Now, it's really hard. Uh, it's not something that like commonly happens, but it's also like legally enshrined. So one way is that you can be just emancipated by your owners. Then you would become something known as a freedman. That's somebody who was formerly a slave and isn't necessarily a citizen themselves, but any children born to freedmen uh, could become citizens. Okay. Likewise, you could work for uh, money and purchase your own uh, freedom from your owners. Usually it's done as like a bundle deal for like yourself and a spouse or yourself and children, but it is kind of there. Like it's not an expectation that because someone is a slave, they and every single descendant that they have will always be slaves. There is some mobility out of that class. Would it be sort of like a like a domestic immigrant idea where like, okay, you're not born here, you're not considered a citizen, but if your children are born here, then they are considered citizens, like that sort of idea? Sort of. But I mean, you know, the 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 concept of slavery in Rome had very, very, very little to do with nationality, other than possibly like the designation of like Roman versus foreigner, um, and a lot more as like a sort of caste system almost. It has a lot oh. more to do with like your position in society than anything else. You know, they tended to keep families together, which is also like a little bit better than some people tend to consider slavery. But like all of that aside, you know, being a slave is still like really, really bad. It's really terrible. You have no, you know, uh, legal rights in terms of like, you know, your your owner could, you know, carry out corporal punishment. You could be killed for certain offenses without any sort of uh trial or anything like that. You didn't technically own property, although a lot of uh, owners would allow slaves to uh, accumulate property kind of informally that would like lead towards uh, payment for freedom. Okay. But yeah, this is a, this is a really terrible uh, position to be in, uh, in society, which should go without saying, but you know, I also don't want to make it sound like it was a, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like a dream, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a good time. But uh, yeah, so that's that's kind of that's a bit of an overview of of what slavery sort of looked like. the The conflict that we're going to be talking about today with Spartacus is not the first time there was a massive slave uprising in Rome. There had actually been two previous ones, and they're not nearly as famous. But it's you know since we're talking about the third one, I figure I might as well tell you about the first and second, um, just to get that question out of the way. The uh, the first Servile War was in Sicily, uh, 135 to 132 BCE, and it is basically a direct consequence of the conquest of Macedonia by Rome. There were so many slaves that entered the market due to that conquest through the mechanism that we just talked about that it completely uh, flooded the supply side of the slave market. Right. And 
people who owned slaves realized that it was probably just cheaper to work their slaves really, really hard and uh, not take good care of them than and just simply buy more uh, when they inevitably, you know, perished or got too ill to work than it was to like take good care of their slaves. Oh, I see. Okay. Because you can always get a new one for cheap. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. yeah. So this leads directly to like really bad treatment for uh, enslaved people. Um, I, I like this one. I like the story of this one because it's started by a guy named Yunus of Syria. And Yunus was a, he, he served as basically a court jester for his master. And he had this routine that he would do where at feasts he would like go around and this is a relatively common trope in, in Roman entertainment, but he would talk about like this reversal of roles between himself and uh, and his owners and talking about like when he's the master and they're the slaves, all the things that he's going to do and how he's going to treat them terribly. And everyone would laugh and laugh. And that'll never happen. That's absurd. <laughs> that's absurd. Well, yeah, exactly. Um, I, I mean, the, the Roman feast of Saturnalia is all about this, right? Like this reversal of roles. Masters would like yeah, serve but... their servants, right? But anyways, Eunice even, it, it, it was documented that it even went so far as like when people would tip him, like give him tips, he would tell mm -hmm. them in return that like when the reckoning comes, they'll be spared. <laughs> Funny guy. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he's the one that leads the slave uprising in direct, uh, indirect, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, reaction to these terrible, terrible conditions. And it's actually documented he did spare some of the people that tipped him. Which is kind of wild. I thought I was kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Eunice, Eunice managed to raise between 70,000 and 200,000 slaves in revolt oh against God. their masters. Now, for context here, Sicily uh, is one of the territories that Rome gained, you know, kind of comprehensive control over in the Punic Wars. And uh, if you'll remember, it's where the majority of like the the base level agriculture was happening in in Italy. Italy's not like great farmland. Uh Sicily is where like all the wheat is farmed. Like that's where you're getting your like your literal bread. Um mm -hmm. so there's a lot more slaves there than there would be on the peninsula. Um and this revolt even though it takes, you know, about 3 years is eventually like violently quashed. Um they need to eat. Basically they need these people back to work. And not a lot of direct change comes out of this necessarily it's seen as more of a hmm like like more of like a criminal action by most romans than it is necessarily seen as like a war proper the uh the second servile war also in sicily takes place between 104 and 100 bce so this one <laughs> starts over an even stupider reason than the first one love it awesome so Italy had just entered into a new alliance with a kingdom called Bithynia. And they basically were asking Bithynia to help out with some wars in Gaul. And the king of Bithynia went, well, I would love to help out, but you've literally enslaved all of my military age men. Um, so I can't. And so the, uh, the Romans went, okay, you know, we want this guy on our side. We want to like get on his good side. So tell you what, let's pass a law basically freeing, uh, sorry, not free. Basically what the law says is that they won't enslave any members of like closely allied nations, 
one of the leaders in Sicily, he holds an office uh, known as Propraetor, uh, took this direction and interpreted it as he needs to free any Bithynian slaves that he has under his uh, under uh, his jurisdiction. So about 800 oh, okay. slaves or, sl- or so are freed. This makes all the other slaves really, really angry because they're like, hey, what the heck? Why are these guys getting to go free and we don't? Yep. Uh, also, any owners of these slaves are really angry because they're like, that's my property. I'm not being compensated for this at all. Uh, this is super unfair. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> so the proprietor goes, oh no, everyone's really mad at me. How can I solve this situation? And the... Um, everyone just like... <laughs> well, the Bithynians liked it until the proprietor went back and reversed his decision and said, actually, you guys are still enslaved. Never mind. <laughs> oh, good. Flip-flopping on top of everything. <laughs> um, now everybody's mad. <laughs> but the, the Bithynians... <laughs> The Bithynians say, whoa, whoa, no take backsies. We're free. The whole thing just completely devolves from there. The proprietor makes it illegal for literally any slaves to be freed under any circumstances to make it look like he's not oh. playing favorites. And yeah, up on slavery. <laughs> once again, the whole situation completely blows up. Um, again, you're looking at like over 20,000 rebels in Sicily. Uh, it takes several years to uh, quell this uh, this revolt. I point these out more like partially because they're they're related in just like the numbering scheme, but also to point out that Rome isn't like necessarily great at handling, for lack of a better word, like morale, I suppose, under uh, around the institution. Um, they don't have a good plan of either keeping strong control or like good spirits, which is kind of how you need to balance something like that and make it work, right? Is it just like a numbers game at that point? Like it's just too much for them to control easily? There's just a lot of people who are enslaved. Yeah. And and what's more, there's a very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I suppose patronizing view of slaves, like in a very literal way in, in Roman society. Like, for example, the only thing that a slave could testify against their master about in court was uh, torture if the master was literally torturing the slaves. And the reasoning behind this was that slaves owed so much to their masters and had such a like a strong affinity for them and like loyalty to them that they would never lie about such a thing, which is a weird way to think about all this. Why people who are enslaved would be like, you know what, I love my master is is kind of beyond me, but like that's sort of how the upper classes in Rome thought about that relationship. And so they kind of didn't really consider the idea that in this very stratified society, some people wouldn't be okay with the stratification when they're at the lowest levels of it. What a concept. Well, yeah, exactly. And, you know, each time this comes up, it's sort of a surprise to everybody. Like, what do you mean the slaves are revolting? Why would they do that? This is a complete shock. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of beyond their, their understanding. The other thing that I want to mention uh, that comes up in between the, uh, the Second and Third Servile Wars is that Rome goes through a period of civil wars in uh, the very early uh, first century BCE that are probably worthy of their own topic, to be perfectly honest with you. Like, they're very complicated, and then they have pretty big ramifications for the future of the Roman Republic. Like a lot of stuff that's going to eventually manifest in Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus have their start in these civil wars. Okay. But 
the short version of the Civil Wars is that uh, it's mainly a question, essentially, of whether power in Rome rests with the people or with the Senate. Because over the years, while pretending to be a republic and therefore like investing power in like the general people, Roman nobility had fought to really hang on to as much influence as possible, right? Yeah. It's it's not a, it's not a complicated idea necessarily, right? But you go through a series of wars. Um, there's the social war in 91 to 87 BCE, which is more or less around the question of whether Rome can force uh, Italian allies who are not Roman citizens to fight and pay taxes without uh, any real political representation, which, you know, it's, again, a fairly familiar theme about a political struggle, right? Okay. Uh, and then there's a series of two civil wars. One is 88 to 87 BCE, and the other one is 83 to 81 BCE. And these are fought mainly between two men named Sulla and Mar- uh, Marius. And again, in very simplified terms, Marius was fighting for a general... Uh, I don't want to use the word democratization because that's not quite right, but a push towards wider representation in uh, the rule of Rome. Okay. While Sulla was pushing for a more conservative, more oligarchic view of what Rome could be. And a lot of the concerns that are swirling around this are very like practical ones. Like, um, you know, there's, there's major problems in Rome about people not actually being able to own any land, but also having no way to really make money to buy food which is a recipe for disaster and right, yeah. people like uh, Marius or like before him, the Gracchi, they're looking for ways to like solve that problem. Marius goes as far as to like, refor- like completely reform the Roman uh, military uh, a couple of decades before this, basically to create a path towards owning land for uh, Italians or, or Roman citizens. So basically, if you uh, serve long enough in a standing Roman military, you will eventually be given a little farm somewhere. Like that's the eventual goal. I think you have to serve twenty years, um, but that's your your reward for it. Um, and then you've kind of set up your your family for forever, kind of thing. Is the idea. That's your retirement plan. That's your pension. <laughs> yeah, essentially, uh, that's that's the idea. Um, now. Sulla ends up winning that this this is he's the one that uh, is trying to reinforce you know Roman aristocratic norms he his victories also mean like a consolidation of like personal military power like it goes mm-hmm. from people serving like under Rome to people serving specific generals and that's kind of the stuff that's going to end up being a problem when uh, Julius Caesar tries taking over right but well, I see. I bring the civil wars up mostly um, because what ends up happening after those other servile wars is Rome basically goes through a reckoning with itself as to whether or not it's willing to um, make sure that everyone is provided for or not. And the answer kind of comes down on the side of no. (laughs) Cool. And a lot of the reason it comes down on the side of no is that like the the reforms that are being proposed, you know, uh, uh, land redistribution, things like that. Um, a lot of the people who are serving in the Senate at that point in time are worried that they're going to lose their own personal properties in all of this. 
but they're kind of you know relegating a lot of citizens to starvation through those actions and it really sours people against the roman government yeah this this sounds a lot like um where we are currently with like american politics and how like the billionaires aren't paying nearly enough taxes and you know you have billionaires while other people are like you know tons of people below the poverty line and stuff like that and whether or not that's right <laughs> yeah yeah and you're you're far from the first person to make that uh that that comparison right like it's a very familiar um conversation to be having right you know how how far mm. above other people are we willing to allow kind of the 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 top couple of percent of the population to be while other people are suffering um it's not yeah. It, it's not a it's not a new conversation by any means, but the fact that we're still having it kind of shows that we haven't really come up with the greatest solution just yet. So, um, well, and then it's literal slaves, you know, like you're exploiting the working class. It's like, okay, mm. well, yeah, absolutely. In insofar as I don't even have the same rights as you, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, anyways, that's all a bunch of kind of context before the rest of the stuff that we want to talk about. And one of the reasons that I'm giving so much kind of varied context for this one is we, we have a problem with this story, which is a very common one throughout history that I think is willing, is really important to think about as we move through this. We have a very limited number of sources uh, historical sources, that is, about the Third Servile War. So even though, you know, characters like Spartacus are well known, like to this day, more than 2000 years later, essentially we're working off two sources. And neither of those sources had anything to do, like any, remotely any contact with the actual insurgents in this story. So the best that we have to work oh, okay. with. The best that we have to work with on this story is the speculation at motive made by men who were pumping up their enemies in their histories, right? Mm. And it's a real problem. So this is a by the winners, and we have very little source as to um, what the other side would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> would be leading. To yeah, exactly. And so the culmination of all of this is that while I'm giving a bunch of stuff where it's kind of like this really could have fed into some of the motivation here, we honestly don't know. We don't have any record of what the motivation of these men will be. We don't know why they did what they did. We honestly don't know for sure some of the things, whether or not they did them because the sources differ from one another. And we're left 2000 right. years later just kind of trying to kind of cobble together scraps we'll read between the lines and interpolate <laughs> yeah well that's that's exactly it because honestly the two sources that we have ascribe two different motivations to uh the the uprising and so we're completely in the dark on this so all mm. we can really do is sort of look at the circumstances about it and sort of make some best guesses but we'll never know mm -hmm. for sure and this is a real problem especially with um, classical history, right? The further you go back, the the fewer the sources become, and kind of the sketchier our understanding of the whole thing becomes. We talked a little bit before about how, in general, slaves had a path towards citizenship. That's mostly true, but there's one way that you could have that taken away from you, and that is by being punished by your master. And 
this is basically for like any crime. So the sort of intention behind the law is that like if you have a slave who um, I don't know, steals from you or kills someone or, you know, another like major crime that you had some sort of punishment that you could levy against them. In reality, anyone could do this to a slave without too much question. So, you know, take all that with a grain of salt. But if a, a slave is punished for a major crime, then they are no longer able to uh, make it to citizenship. And often, uh, part of that uh, punishment will be to send them off to fight as gladiators. And the idea there is like, honestly, this guy is so much of a troublemaker, I don't even want him on my estate anymore. Like, just get rid of him completely. Right. Okay. Um, I've actually had one or two requests for doing gladiators as a topic before, and I don't think there's really enough meat on those bones to do it as as its own topic, but it's well worth talking about because it's one of those things that I think has been really mythologized about uh, uh, Roman society, and it is kind of interesting stuff. It's just not very deep, right? We all have sort of a, a popular uh, media conception of what a gladiator was or like what gladiator fights would look like. And honestly, for the most part, as far as these things go, the media depictions are not actually that bad. I, I say it with surprise in my voice. It's not often that you can say that. And I mean, obviously blown up for drama and spectacle and things like that. But like a, a lot of things um, that I could tell you about gladiators, you would very much recognize from TV and movies. For example, there are a couple of different kinds of gladiators, right? You would have... Um, uh, you know, you you would have the guy with the the uh, little round shield and the curved sword, and he's got uh, uh, metal greaves on his left leg only, versus like the guy with the big square shield versus the guy with the trident and the net, which is my favorite guy. Um, you know, they they had these weird right. like mm-hmm. meta gaming things going on with the gladiator fights, where they wanted it like asymmetrical but balanced. <laughs> Well, see, it's funny because they start out with three different types of of, uh, gladiators, Um, basically the three main enemies of Rome at the time. So you would have uh, Gauls, Samnites, and Thracians, and each of those would like, you know, match to a certain fighting style, right? And as those became either not current enemies of Rome or else boring in the meta, they would throw in new kinds. I love boring in the meta. I mean, that's essentially what it is, right? They, uh, they, We're gonna try that instead. They all, they all have swords and shields. This is so boring. Let's give them. Let's give them some uh, entrapment and some reach. We give them a trident and a net. Um, it's 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 exactly what was going on here. So yeah, they would they would throw in these like fantasy kinds that are not actually based on a real enemy, but it was more exciting to watch because it mixed things up. Yeah, so I mean, originally they think that the gladiator game started as like a funeral rite, so it was like a ceremonial reenactment of battles that uh, the fallen people had been through, um, as sort of oh. like a sort of a reenactment, but also sort of like an offering kind of thing. Hmm. Originally, usually done with like blunt weapons, it was more uh, you know pageantry than anything else, right? Right. They really exploded in popularity actually during the Punic Wars. And it's interesting because they they take on this like extra 
religious bent to them. Like they're already sort of a, a religious right, but you know, when things are going really poorly in the Punic Wars, which you'll, you'll remember things for a while were really bad, they took on almost like a yeah. sacrificial quality. Like we're going to put on some games and we're going to actually have some of them fight to the death. And maybe this will please whoever we're dedicating these games to. Right. And then when things started going well, it tended to take on like a celebratory sort of uh, mood, right? Like you'd get um, uh, feasts that are uh, associated with them. It's a celebration of like victorious battles, things like that. Um, but it's almost always like individuals who are putting on games. Mm -hmm. It's not until 105 BCE, which is only, you know, 35 years before we're talking about with this, uh, this uprising. It's only 105 BCE that the first state-sponsored games come out. Uh, and then they become like more of a part of like public uh, life, like as in like civic life. And people would start dedicating them to not only necessarily gods, but also to um, family members sometimes to sort of like tie it to like personal glory. There's a lot of like ancestor stuff, right? Like this is my ancestor. He did really great things. I'm dedicating games to them. By the way, look at my bloodline, basically. Yeah, yeah. It was often kind of done around like election time. Mm -hmm. And it got to the point actually where people would like delay funeral rites for deceased loved ones so they could put on games close to election times to try and sway public sentiment. Yeah, that's what I was wondering if it gets to the point where it's all about uh, like personal glory and like a demonstration of like personal power and wealth and um, history that is then used to sort of be like, hey, aren't I great? Vote for me. <laughs> yeah, nail on the head. That's exactly what it was. To the point, my, my favorite example of this actually is Julius Caesar, who put on uh, Gladiator Games uh, for his father right before his, his election, who had been dead for 20 years. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> like, there's no... Like, we can't even pretend that that's, like, associated anymore, right? Like, that's just, you know, it, it's it's extremely cynical. It's, it's entirely about bringing people uh, around to your side. And, you know, it's going to continue becoming, like, bigger and bigger spectacles, takes longer, more fighters, more feasting. And people love watching these things, which is understandable. Well, that, that's my next question. Um, if if you're the average citizen at this point and it's all about the spectacle, it's all about the entertainment and the morale boost and stuff like that, like, do you necessarily care if it's 20 years too late? Uh, you know, oh, absolutely does not. Does that influence opinion? <laughs> no, no, they're 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 out for their day of of uh, entertainment. Right. Because like that's that's all part of it is that you don't like pay tickets to get in. You're you're welcomed in as part of this conceit of it being a funerary rite. So if I can draw a comparison then, is it sort of like the over commercialization of like Christmas almost? <laughs> Where it's like it was a religious holiday, it still technically is, but now it's sort of uh considered to be commercialized and more about gift giving and, and celebration and excess and stuff like that. You know, the Original meaning is still there, but we're sort of clinging to it as a vestige. Yeah, I, I suppose you could draw that comparison, except for the fact that I, I would agree, or I would argue that um, the the gladiator games were even further removed from that, um, you know, religious aspect. Uh, it it became somewhat closer to, um, like like not the worst analogy in the world would be like professional wrestling if sometimes somebody died. <laughs> 
Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. <laughs> like it's it's not it's not that far off, really, in a lot of ways. Now, I mean, I think people tend to go back and forth on like how often gladiators died. It is a very like it's it's extremely possible that you're going to die in gladiator games. Now, it's not as though every single fight was to the death, but lots of them were. I think a better way of looking at it is that um, you're probably like if you if you survive through 10 matches you're considered like a very good gladiator right now that's not assuming that you're always like somebody always goes out on the first uh, you know on the first games that they play right like it's not every match is is to the death there would be uh somebody running the games he's known as an editor actually and they would decide uh the outcome of the match so you might just get beaten so badly that the editor is like all right this is over like you know this right. this one won this one lost we're, we're calling it basically um sometimes if somebody fought so badly like didn't like didn't show courage basically they would allow the competitor to kill them sometimes the editor would step in and kill the competitor themselves but a lot of the fatality of the games depended on other things right you might have a less prestigious game where they basically handed out blunt weapons because you know it's not like done for a very wealthy patron for like a big crowd it's just sort of a nice saturday afternoon out um but they don't necessarily want to worry about someone dying likewise there are different classes of gladiators right some of them are these slaves that we talked about who are almost certainly condemned to death whereas other people would be freedmen who would volunteer for the games and they would be a lot less likely to die in the fighting right because they're there to be paid they're essentially doing this as a career where you can make a lot of money all of that said the uh, the slaves who are fighting here if you fight well enough in the games and if you fight bravely enough the editor can actually grant you manumission like they, they can actually free you uh as a reward for fighting well enough so there's a lot of there's there's a lot of motivation to actually do really really well in the games it's very much like this is your final shot at a life worth living and it really incentivizes gladiators to fight hard fight well so i mean in that way i mean if you're if you're sort of transcending from slave to free men by the virtue of your performance in these games so it's considered a way to sort of transcend your caste is that the idea yeah essentially i mean you can you can make it out of slavery on on those merits and and some of this is to like add drama to the games right like the, like if that happens the crowd's gonna go nuts yeah it's the underdog yeah, it's exactly. It's the underdog story. That's exactly what it is. Likewise, it incentivizes slaves like to give a good performance because otherwise, like, why would you just battle to the death if you know you're just going to keep doing this over and over until you're killed by somebody? Like if there's no way out. Right. It's kind of ingenious in a really diabolical way in a fashion that is entirely oriented towards entertainment right and what's prized in these fights is not necessarily like the most brutal person or the most efficient person right like it's it's about style it's about flair it's about carrying yourself well like again it, it is very much like wrestling right like nobody wants to watch it's all about like pro wrestling it's like you have your heels you have your heroes your face yeah and you've got the the pat it's, it's all about putting on the performance and putting it on well yeah that even if you lose 
might still be a fan of yours. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like if you if you went to a pro wrestling match and one of the guys just walked out there and put put the other guy in like a massive pin three seconds in, like, yeah, okay, he wins, but like, was that fun? Did you enjoy that? No. Yeah. No. Thirty seconds. Why that's not enough. You need to show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so a lot of this a lot of this fighting style is oriented towards giving a show. It's not like military precision fighting, right? Uh, can I ask kind of a, a sidebar question? Because I don't know if this is going to come up naturally. Sure. <laughs> in popular fiction, you often have like the matches where it's like, uh, you know, this soldier who or this gladiator who has done well in the past versus like a lion or something like that. Mm-hmm. So would that be based on like uh, like a fable or a mythology or something like that? Uh, if there was a story for it. <laughs> like the, the, the fiction of the fight or are you asking whether that happened? Well, I'm asking A, whether that happened, and B, if that was sort of, like you've said before, um, some of these uh, gladiatorial matches were sort of reenactments of, like, famous battles between, like, you know, warring armies and stuff like that. So if you have a person versus a lion, for example, would that be sort of like a, it's based on this ancient myth, you know, where so-and-so, like Hercules versus the lion or something like that? So first of all, like, yes, beast fights did happen, like fairly, they, they were very, very popular, actually. Um, it wouldn't necessarily always be lions, um, because lions are like, they'll wreck you. Like, it, it's kind of too fast a little bit. Um, but yeah, you would you would fight against the animals. Um, there, there's kind of two versions of this. One is the like, there, there are there are people who are condemned to fight in the gladiator pits that are not ever going to get out they're actually known as noxi um like same root as like nauseous right um they're okay. they're just like the worst everyone hates them <laughs> they've done something terrible that make everybody sick uh so you if you're a noxi they might just literally throw you in with a lion so that people like under the conceit of like oh maybe he'll fight his way out but like literally you're just being executed in a very like theatrical manner essentially like they're not expecting you to get out of there yeah the other is like, yeah, you can have like a couple, like a team of gladiators fighting a little bit more closely matched uh, fight against animals. Um, you know, they would, again, they cared a lot about balance. Like they want to get the match uh, interesting, right? And so that was that was another type of battle, but it wouldn't necessarily, like, I mean, I, I suppose it's possible they might have, you know, claimed that it was based on some sort of mythical tail but in general it was more like a category of fight you know like your your day isn't made up of like headline 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 right so uh if you're going to the games like you're probably going to go in early on what you're going to see is like a, a skirmish battle which is just a bunch of like really poorly trained slaves hacking at each other and it's probably not going to be like the most exciting thing. Okay. And then as you work your way through the program, you're going to see like more prestigious people. You're going to throw in a beast battle for some like variety, like team matches, like three versus three or something like that. But like in general, you're okay. working your way up to like the most famous gladiator and like each gladiator fight is going to be like 15 minutes each. Like they're not fast or anything, right? Like they're trying to draw it out for the, for the crowds, but like you're going to work your way through this program and they're going to throw different things in to spice it up as you go through. So would it be reasonable then to say that at that point, it's more about the entertainment value um, 
versus the beginning of these uh, gladiatorial arenas where it was more based on like historical uh, events. Yeah. So you might have like, like later in Rome, it was very famous or it was very popular, popular to like recreate a famous battle uh, with gladiators. And so it might be okay. like so-and-so is playing the, 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 you know, the leader of this nation and so-and-so is playing the Roman commander and they're going to recreate the battle mm-hmm. at whatever. And, um, you know, well, we talked about Cannae, right. At, at, in the, uh, Punicors, that was a very famous or a very popular one to like recreate. Um, and uh, so okay. it would be like, you know, the grand finale tonight, we're going to redo the battle of Cannae. And I mean, it's going to have like you know, 30 or 40 fighters, not tens of thousands. Um, but it's going to be maybe somewhat vaguely based on something that looked like the battle. It's like your main event and everything else is just like, you know, here's entertainment. We're going to change the program up. So we have the skirmish, we have the beast battle, we have some uh, starters, but our main event is going to be uh, something big and glorious and impressive. Sure. Or that might be the last thing before like the title fight between the two most popular gladiators or whatever. Like they're just looking to mix it up, right? Like there isn't like a set, um, curriculum here. Uh, but like all yeah. these, so, so those recreations are still going to be in the mix. They're not always going to be the most important mm-hmm. thing that's happening there. So yeah, you know, a lot of that stuff that you see in, in popular fiction, like the, the recreations, the beast battles, even the, like flooding the Colosseum with water so that they could do naval battles, that all happened. That was real. They, they went all out. Now we're not really at that like peak decadence where we're talking about. That's not going to happen <laughs> for another like 200 years where we're flooding naval battles and stuff. But in the period we're talking, we, you are going for entertainment value. You are looking at like a multi-day program. You are looking for variety. You are doing beast fights. You are doing recreations. Um, so yeah, it's it's very much more about the entertainment than it is about the the funeral rites. That's mostly a, a an excuse um, for people to. Uh, put on games now it's only one reason like you could also put on games to uh, commemorate a wedding or to commemorate a victory or uh, you know like there's like it becomes like a more multi-purpose celebration and mostly it's about getting people on your side for giving them free entertainment but yeah the the purpose behind it varies a lot more the way that you're talking about this and i'm sure that we'll kind of get to this at some point or possibly at the end of this topic but this seems like a predecessor then like direct predecessor to like your medieval jousts and renaissance fairs and so on oh yeah or or you could even point to um you know spanish bullfighting uh you can also point to the circus which is uh you know has roots uh i mean linguistically literally in uh in gladiatorial fights but like there there is also like entertainment that isn't fighting in between things right it's all about keeping everybody interested entertained um so yeah there's there's lots of there's lots of things that this kind of is a is a an ancestor of but yeah the 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 jousting is a is a really good example of of where this kind of eventually ends up yeah blood sport as a genre (laughs) yeah yeah pretty much so if you're a slave and you do something bad enough that your master decides that uh they want to sell you off as a gladiator, um, the first thing that's going to happen is you're going to be sent to Eludus, which is a gladiator school. Because I think we have this concept of like every person in Roman times was like good at fighting. And like, that's not true. Most of these people are like farmers or whatever, right? They don't want to toss those people in untrained because that's going to be boring. (laughs) Right. They're going to lose too fast. 
And so they're going to be sent to they're going to be sent to a school, and there are schools around Rome uh, that are specialized in the training of gladiators. Because again, it is different than like military service, right? right. And even people who have had some sort of service are going to be trained at these schools because it's a specific uh, entertainment oriented type of fighting. So one of the most famous places for training gladiators was a city known as Capua. And that's where our entire thing begins because in 73 BCE, for reasons that to this day, we don't really know for sure, other than like some very obvious you know, self-evident ones, about 200 gladiators at a school in Capua start plotting uh, an escape. They decide they don't want to do this whole gladiator thing. Seems dangerous, seems bad, don't want to bother with it. Okay, yeah. And again, like, yeah, you can go like, well, it's obvious they don't want to be slaves or like, it's obvious they don't want to partake in blood sport where they might die. But like, we don't actually have any record of like what the motivation is here, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Somebody breaks, the owner of the school gets wind of the plot, and before they can actually carry out their their real plans, it gets out that they're plotting an escape. And so about 70 of these gladiators break into the kitchen at the school, and they steal a bunch of cleavers, and they steal a bunch of spits. They fight past the guards of the school, break free, and seize several wagons full of gladiator equipment. Oh, okay. <laughs> now, keep in mind, this isn't like proper you know legionary armor or anything like that gladiator equipment is usually like your torso is free and you have one limb covered or like a shield maybe a helmet if you're lucky depending on what it is the weapons might also not be great quality but they are weapons and they are armor and they are the things that these men have been training to use very very well you gave them all the tools they need These uh, these escaped gladiators choose uh, several leaders, uh, including Crixus, who's known as the undefeated Gaul when uh, when fighting in the arena. Okay, cool. Cool, man. We know he's from Gaul, and I guess he had never been uh, defeated. That's what I'm taking from this. Uh, and uh, Spartacus. Spartacus is known as the Thracian. Now, we're unsure if that refers to his nationality, as in he had been a Thracian soldier who was not captured, but like the Thracians would have worked as auxiliaries in the Roman military. He may have been sent to the gladiator school as a punishment for something he'd done. But the Thracian is also a type of gladiator. Like it's one of those categories we talked about before. And if possible, he just, that's what he was trained as. We're not entirely sure. I was about to ask if it's like his preferred style or something. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's, that's what we're not sure of. Now it's people, I think are leaning more towards he was actually from Thrace. Spartacos is a documented Greek name from that region. Uh, This would just be like Spartacus would be like a a Latinization of that. Um, But we, again, have no idea because we have no record of any of this man's thoughts or ambitions or hopes and dreams. (laughs) No birth certificate, no long form. None of it. This escape is seen as something more like a theft or maybe like a riot than it is necessarily a revolt, kind of following in the footsteps of those other two wars. The gladiators immediately begin plundering the countryside for uh, supplies, you know, food, things like that. And a small number of troops uh, is dispatched to suppress them. 
um, just local militia kind of thing. Uh, they're not really considered to be a major threat, except that the gladiators managed to defeat all of these soldiers <laughs> and they steal all of their armor and weapons. And now they're armed. Now they're ready to go. This has just become a really big problem. Yep. I think this is a good place to take a quick break because things are really going to start moving and it's going to be hard to find a good spot after this. Um, so yeah, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll find out what happens next. Yeah, sounds good. All right, we're back on HI 101 here with Kevin Miller. Hello. And we've been talking about uh, mostly gladiators and slaves so far. Not a whole lot about Spartacus, but uh, they just sprung out. They just, they just got out of the school. Um, just got introduced. Yeah. And it's weird because, you know, like I've mentioned a couple of times, we don't really know exactly what precipitated this. I mean, yeah, being a gladiator probably wasn't all that great. And being a slave was far worse. It's not as though this is the only gladiator school in Rome. It's not as though we have any record of the, you know, the guy running the school being particularly bad. We don't really know what exactly it was, you know? Right. But we do know that they felt badly enough about it that they were willing to um, very much risk their lives by not only breaking out, but also going up against uh, Roman troops to get out. And that says quite a bit. When we stopped before, they had just procured uh, some Roman legionary armor and weapons, which is going to be quite a bit better than what they had before. And it seems fairly obvious that at least some people in this group knew uh, or, or had experience rather with professional soldiering because they organized quite quickly into a very small but very effective uh, fighting group. And yet, despite the fact that they managed to uh, break out and defeat this one force, they're really not taken seriously for quite some time. And again, I think this points back to what we talked about last time in terms of uh, Roman attitudes towards slaves and what they expected slaves' attitudes towards them to be. The idea that they would just simply break out and, uh, you know, harbor any animosity towards them whatsoever just didn't seem to click with them for whatever reason yeah it wasn't the first thought <laughs> yeah so we talked about marius a little bit when we talked about those uh civil wars earlier uh we talked uh specifically about the fact that or or i mentioned very briefly the fact that marius had uh had made some military reforms um, prior to those civil wars. These reforms are like one of those things that if you're doing like a course on Roman history, you'll probably spend some time on. The main thing for our purposes that is worth knowing is that when these reforms come about in 107 BCE, um, the, the thing that it changes about the Roman military before that point Generally, the military was made up of people of virtually every social class, um, essentially right. being called away uh, to volunteer. You were expected as a Roman citizen to maintain your own uh, weapons and armor. Right. And a portion of belonging to a higher social class was that you were expected to have better arms and armor 
uh, at your disposal to use in the defense of Rome. So like, yeah, you could move up and become richer, but you were also now expected to bring a horse, whereas before you were expected to be foot troops. And horses are expensive. Um, you know, things like that. Yeah, we had we had talked about this uh, when we discussed the the Punic Wars, where the culture of Rome was very much militaristic. That uh, it's expected and uh, noteworthy, and it brings glory to your family when you uh, do serve in the military. It's very much baked into their society, and I guess still at this point. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing that it does is it sort of ties military service to Roman patriotism in a certain way like when you're being called to battle you're being called to battle for rome a country or nation i suppose country is a funny word but you're, you're being called to serve in a military for a society uh, you know that you're very much a part of that you participate in actively right and that brings a certain type of loyalty when, nationalism uh, yeah nationalism works um these these reforms that marius makes are kind of a reaction to, in part, it's a reaction to the decimation of the citizen class out of the Punic Wars. I mean, it's a long time after, but uh, we saw some of those issues when we talked about the Punic Wars, right? Like, there's just simply a lot less aristocrats to lead the army. Um, mm -hmm. It's also a reaction to those uh, land problems that we talked about, right? If less and less people are owning land and more and more land is being consolidated under a smaller number of wealthier owners, you are hurting your military as well as your economy, right? Like it's, it's reducing the number of people who can serve. Uh, especially in the, the capacity under which they can serve too, right? Because then you have less people who are able to maintain and, and own better weapons and armor and horses and stuff like that. And more and more people who are just your basic foot soldiers. Yeah, exactly. So what Marius proposes and what they end up putting in place is rather than expecting all citizens to form an army, why don't we create a separate military class, a professional standing army who is ready at all times to defend Rome? And then we get into that giving out land scheme that we talked about earlier, right? As part of that retirement package. So this allows people who currently don't have land to become landed citizens and continue refreshing the citizen class of Rome, while also making sure that Rome always has a sufficient number of soldiers. Because there's always going to be people who want to move up in class. Right. This is this is basically the only route that someone can uh, can legitimately take in sort of a like a high probability of success sort of way like there there are other ways you can get land but this is by far the easiest or or uh most assured of success let's put it that way so this is like the creation of a career path effectively <laughs> yeah absolutely absolutely now what marius doesn't necessarily consider when he's doing all of this is like, where are we going to get the land that we're going to give to the soldiers? Like, that's going to be a massive problem down the road. But the other thing that it creates, or the other problem that it creates, is, you know, the, the Roman military is very much like, it's very segmented, which allows a lot of like flexibility in responding to threats. Um, but what you get out of the soldiers is rather than a loyalty to sort of like the idea of Rome as a whole, this sort of 
nationalism that you alluded to, mm-hmm. you get soldiers who are very much invested in the success of their general, the person leading their unit. The better the unit as a whole does, and the better the commander does in specific, the better all of the soldiers are paid. Uh, yeah, that makes sense. And so you get a lot of people who are like very personally loyal rather than like generally loyal. And if history has shown us anything about militaries, the biggest problems come from militaries who are personally loyal rather than uh, civically loyal. Yeah, like you got personal stakes in the success of the of your commanding officer. <laughs> well, and and the funny thing happens when the commanding officer asks you to do things that are against the uh, nation as a whole. Um, well, yeah, that's <laughs> that's that's the that's the bigger problem. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that later. <laughs> oh, will we ever? I mean, we already got to it with Sulla. That was one thing that came out of the out of the uh, civil war. Was interestingly enough, the guy who Sulla was fighting against, Marius, made it possible for Sulla to bring his own troops into Rome and enforce a dictatorship. He's the first dictator that Rome has had since the Punic Wars, and very much a model for you know the future military dictatorship of uh, Julius Caesar. Anyways, a lot of this is all kind of side notes for, you know, the the general uh, makeup of the Roman military. Um, But it is to say that, like, the soldiers that the gladiators are going to be fighting against, they aren't always going to just be sort of riffraff militia. You actually have a standing military to worry about at this point. Okay, got it. So the gladiators now outfitted with you know professional military gear uh they provision again they recruit uh slaves in the general area into their ranks and they very quickly start building up a base of just people again this is one of those things where like we're not necessarily sure on what basis if this is just general fed upness remember in the <laughs> well i mean remember we're on the heels we're only 10 years out of the the civil wars which basically told everybody mm, you're kind of stuck where you are sorry we're not going to do a whole lot about it yeah. um, that is extremely disillusioning maybe this guy has just has a better sales pitch you know um but it could also be that they have very specific goals and demands we're not entirely sure the uh, w- once they've uh, once they've made new recruits, they've provisioned the gladiators retreat to uh, the nearby Mount Vesuvius, which is a much more defensible position. The area that they were raiding in Capua was more of like a I've seen it kind of described as more of like a wealthy resort kind of thing. It's like, OK, it's where all the rich people from Rome went to vacation, basically. Got it. So Hamptons. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, they were in the Muskokas, right? Like, everybody's mad about their cottage. Um, cottage country. They, uh, well, and that's that's part of the reason that they start getting a little bit of attention is people are like, oh, my summer home. Uh, whereas if this... Yeah, that's exactly... All my good armor's there. <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of other places they could have probably been raiding where people would have just not really... Or people in power, rather, would have just not particularly cared. But, like, this is, this is a little bit personal. It's, it's totally out of time and everything, but I'm picturing lots of monocles being popped off. Like, good <laughs> lord. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's about right. Uh, so, yeah, M- Mount Vesuvius is, is not cottage country. It's, um, it's, it's a lot easier to defend. There's basically one good way up Mount Vesuvius, and so they can, they can actually, like 
create some sort of, you know, earthworks and things like that to to mount a proper defense uh, because they're assuming that soldiers are coming and they're not wrong. Um, there's a, a Praetor in the area. Praetor is like a... Um, I mean, it's Rome, so it's kind of more complicated than this, but they're like a, a top military commander, but also sort of like a magistrate. So I uh, think somewhere along the lines of like leading like a municipal or small provincial government, but also the top military commander in the area. Yeah, I was trying to think of like a like a what we would consider like a governor like a few hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, governor works. That that works well. So there's a praetor, uh, Gaius Claudius Glaber, who is tasked with taking care of this, you know, this riffraff, right? Like this nuisance. Because again, they're not thinking about it as uh, an insurrection. This is kind of thought of as like a, yeah, like a riot maybe, or like a crime spree maybe. Um, it's mm-hmm. not taken all that seriously. And because of that, he decides not to bring like the actual proper... Uh, legion to bear on these guys. He recruits a okay. militia of about 3,000 people. And this is sort of... I, I've kind of been thinking about it almost as like a like a sheriff posse type system. Okay, yep. <laughs> where it's like, instead of bringing in the real military, why don't I just hire some guys from the local area for like a one-off thing? Because that's all this is going to be, right? We're going to sit down in front of the one road up the mountain that they can go up. Uh, We're going to put them to siege. They're going to starve out. They'll surrender. It's all over. No problem. And that way we don't have to, like, get the proper military involved in case they're busy with some, like, you know, actual threat. This is a quick little one-off. I see one of two ways that this goes. Um, I would bet on the gladiators in most situations in this story, at least at least until we get towards the end. So, uh, on one hand, what I'm seeing is okay. These gladiators have been um, underestimated before. They've already defeated like the legionnaires that were sent after them initially and taken their uh, arms and armaments and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, if you're leading a non-professional army against them, then what are the odds that they just join? <laughs> right. So. That's that's a good point. However, this army would have been made up of freedmen. They wouldn't be uh, slaves. These are people who they're kind of working for wages for the most part. And so uh, I think it would be fair to assume that they see themselves as just kind of built different than all the slaves. They would see joining this as a step down. So I, I wouldn't so, worry about that too much if I was the Praetor, but uh, it, it's worth it's worth considering. A uh, question on that then: uh, Would they be considered like mercenaries at that point, or are they like citizens who are being called upon by the governor? Like it sounds like it's all just for pay. Yeah, it's the latter. There's a there, there's a uh, formally established malicious system in place, right? Um, it's it's basically the vestige of the old military system, right? The the governor basically okay. says, hey, I need 3,000 guys who, who can step up. Mm-hmm. The difference here is that, like, he'd be putting out a call and people would be more or less volunteering. Like, I mean, there's there's a little more coercion in, in, in place than that, but it's also not, you know, putting out a call for all able-bodied citizens to bring their state-mandated, well-kept armor. Um, Got it. It's just that this is a, a mechanism at their disposal because, you know, this also isn't a time where you have, like, a formalized police system, right? Like, 
this is this is how yeah. you would suppress things internally is is you uh, get a big enough group of guys together to stop the criminals and then they go back to their regular lives doing you know farming or whatever yeah so the the sheriff and his posse is a great analogy then <laughs> yeah yeah I think it's I think it's probably the strongest one here so you have a, one road down Vesuvius you have three thousand militia members uh, sitting at the bottom all deputized all properly uh, uh, legal and whatever seems like a great plan by Glaber, right? The thing is, the gladiators consistently show a lot of ingenuity when it comes to dealing with what should be fairly straightforward situations. Uh, they display a lot of lateral thinking, I suppose, is one way to put it. Uh, All right. And what they do is they go, well, this militia is basically dug in. They're facing up the mountain. They're waiting for us to either attack them, which wouldn't go well for us, or they're waiting for us to just starve and give up, which they consider much more likely. But a lot of ancient or, or classical period, I should say, um, military maneuvering has to do with which way the soldiers are pointing, which I know sounds kind of silly, but... <laughs> no, I totally get it. This is something we talked about in the Punic Wars, too. It's, it's you have your soldiers and you line them up, and yeah. then you have the other soldiers and you line them up and if you're not ready to be attacked from a certain position yeah then you can't just thousand people around <laughs> yeah it's 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 not it's not quite that easy a lot of the a lot of the the strength of a military unit in this time is dependent on like literally like interlocking like physically interlocking uh with shields and uh you know uh attacking with with uh spears from depth and things like that it's not just as simple as like the, the yeah, it's, it's more than the sum of its parts, right? Like it's, it's all about that phalanx. It's all about working together. So what the, uh, what the gladiators do is they strip a bunch of vines and uh, trees off of Mount Vesuvius. And without the, the militia realizing what they were doing, they built a bunch of ladders and ropes out of this material. And they went to the opposite side of Vesuvius where they couldn't be seen by the militia and climbed down some cliffs that were generally considered to be a terrible route down. But we're talking about people who are extremely desperate, right? Like they have very few options open to them. And what is unthinkable for, you know, a nice little posse out for a, a couple of days siege and then a nice paycheck is you know, very well worth considering when you are fugitive slaves with nothing to lose. Got it. Yep. So, so they climb down these cliffs. Sorry, they're putting together this pincer attack then, huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could call it a pincer attack. It's more like they just attack them from the rear without them realizing they get around the, mm. they get around the mountain up the road and more or less crush them against their own defensive line. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a slaughter. It's real bad. They take 3000 militias worth of, arms and armor here we go again pass it around through the guys who don't already have swords and shields spears whatnot um they just continue to like gear up through these improbable victories against what are supposed to be some of the best soldiers in the world um glaber is removed from the task it is it is no longer under his purview to take care of the gladiators oh yeah <laughs> They send another praetor, uh, Publius Verinius, uh, with another 2,000 men. And this time, 
it's uncertain in the in the sources whether or not like as literally as in the sources aren't sure whether or not it's militia or proper troops this time like plutarch is like i'm not sure which one it is so again mm-hmm. this Got is that it. problem of like ancient sources right but yeah Verinius does this weird thing where he decides to like split his troops and i think he's hoping to like kind of come around and like encircle them or, or hit them in a pincer movement or something like that. And so really they're only attacking with like a thousand guys at a time. The gladiator forces at this point are, are like tens of thousands. Like there's a lot of men. And once again, the legions are defeated by the gladiators. Uh, the Praetor is nearly captured himself. One of his commanders is killed. All of the equipment is again seized. And after these like several victories at Vesuvius, the gladiator forces are up to uh, over 70,000 is the best estimate. <laughs> well, this has gotten wild. <laughs> it has. Absolutely. But I mean, again, remember, you're, you're looking at about a third of the population is enslaved. Probably not yep. great prospects are probably be, being treated very poorly by the people who own them. And it's kind of like, well, do I keep my head down and hope for the best? Or do I maybe take a chance on this group who is showing a lot of success so far? Basically, heroes, yeah. <laughs> Essentially, yeah, yeah. You got, you've, you've got kind of a, a myth building up around them. They can't be beaten by the Romans. And it's sort of like, well, maybe this is a good shot. Maybe this is the best shot I've ever had. Mm-hmm. They're also, like, it's weird. Some of the sources, like, very specifically mention, like, also some shepherds joined them which i'm not sure what that has to do with anything <laughs> but they want to make very clear that it's not just slaves um uh, whenever we get to these footnotes where it's like hey also there were some shepherds there it's like okay someone thought that was worthwhile to write down yeah i'm reminded of the uh, the giant baby that we read about once. <laughs> <laughs> it's an hi101 classic um yeah i i <laughs> I don't know why. And that's the thing that always kind of frustrates me about it, too. Like, it really intrigues me. Like, why was it so important to mention that there were also shepherds? Like, I would have assumed that shepherds would generally have been slaves. Maybe some of them are, you know, free but unlanded. I don't know. But, like, again, I the only thing I can come up with personally is that like is to point out that it's not only slaves that are part of this force, that there's some sort of like cross class appeal here. I don't know. It's the best I've got. That, that's kind of what I was wondering too. Is if um, you know, you, like you say, you're up to seventy thousand strong at this point. Like I assume that there's you know other non military or or non combatant uh, people joining up with them as well to sort of do like a baggage train almost. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. Um, but yeah, I, it, it would be very nice to just kind of figure out like what exactly they meant and and why they wouldn't just say like also he was in, he was joined by freedmen. What is it about the what is it about the shepherds? Anyways, moving on. We've we've dwelt, dwelled on that too too long. Um so yeah, we have another military victory. At this point, it's basically winter. And in the ancient world, you don't fight in winter. It's just too hard and too dangerous, basically. Mm -hmm. That is, in general, the time that you would uh, go home and prepare your farm for the spring uh, planting. Yep. So uh, there's a lull in uh, the fighting, and the gladiator forces are going to spend that winter of 73 to 72 BCE basically raiding for supplies and training. That was a good 
question. Yeah, is that, are they just basically starving at this point because <laughs> they don't have the sort of infrastructure available to feed themselves? Yeah, well, I mean, they're they're just essentially yeah raiding from nearby towns, uh, stealing food. Mm-hmm. That being said, I don't know if any of that is being offered freely. I, I honestly don't know. But in any case, that's how they're keeping fed is, is just raiding. And then the training I find interesting because that suggests that, you know, most of the people that are joining them don't, or a lot of the people at least don't have any military experience, which is, again, unsurprising because most of them will be uh, slaves of either agricultural bent, maybe some mining and then some domestic slaves who wouldn't have any combat experience for very obvious reasons. You don't generally try and train your slaves to be effective combatants. It's, uh, it's, it's, yeah. Uh, so, but what you have is a bunch of people who just came from a gladiator school who are like, they've been going through military training and like very quick military training, uh, themselves. And so they're in a very good place to train others in a similar fashion. I find that really interesting. Yeah. You get to spring of 72 CE and the Senate is now like, okay, well we can't mess around with this anymore. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of cottages being broken into. It's no good. They decide to dispatch two consular legions. The consular legions are like the most elite uh, units in the Roman military at this point. So they, rather than answering to a praetor of some sort, they answered directly to uh, one of the two consuls uh, who are the, the right. and, and uh, Rome would have two at a time, but they're the two highest military, or sorry, uh, political offices in Rome. And generally the consuls would lead these uh, units themselves. So there's like an aspect of military command to Roman political leadership, but they're giving them the best troops. Two legions is going to be somewhere in the range of like 9,000 soldiers, something like that. But again, like the best ones out there. And they're going to be under the, they're going to be under the control of the two consuls of the year, uh, Lentulus and Gellius. And, by the time these consular legions march out, uh, the, sp- the slaves seem to have split off into two different groups. We don't necessarily know why. There is speculation that there is kind of a difference in purpose or goal among uh, different factions of slaves at this point. But again, we don't have enough information to really suggest what those are. The two leading theories from our sources are from Appian and from Plutarch. Appian claims that the slaves wanted to march on Rome itself, like overthrow the seat of Roman power. That, to me personally, seems implausible. Um, It would be extremely difficult to do. And I I think it almost does more to like reflect the fears of the people writing the histories than it does necessarily to explain the moves that are going to come up. Right, yeah, I see. Plutarch will uh, suggest that the slaves mainly just wanted to like get across the Alps into Gaul and return to their homelands from there, basically. So just like escape Italy, which seems a little more plausible to me, but also won't match up with a lot of the the actual physical moves that they're going to make, um, according to Plutarch himself. And so 
we're kind of left with this like, oh, I'm not really sure what they were hoping to accomplish. Maybe they didn't have a strong goal. Maybe there was a split in personality uh, um, allegiance. I don't know. Again, it's that problem of not having any access to sources uh, within the revolt itself. Right. Slaves had split off. About 30,000 were moving under Crixus. That was the undefeated Gaul, right? And the consular legions managed to defeat Crixus' forces. So about 30,000 of them. Crixus is killed in this fighting. But the larger force under Spartacus, at this point, potentially as large as 120,000 people are, are still out there. Now, a note on the numbers here. A lot of times in ancient sources... They tend to, when talking about force size, and we, we would have talked about this with the Punic Wars. Right. A lot of times ancient sources tend to underestimate friendly forces to make them look stronger than they are. Got it. And overestimate enemy forces to show how cool it is that they beat them or to justify losses. It's like, you know, if there was actually like 50,000 people there, but you say it was 300,000 and you still won, you look amazing. If you lost, it's like, well, there were 300,000 of them. So anyways, the numbers in the sources say that Spartacus had as many as 120,000 people here. Take that with a grain of salt. But it is a lot of people. And when the when the legionary forces come in contact with Spartacus's forces, they defeat uh, one of the legions. It's Lentulus's legion. And this is like... This is going to rattle people back in Rome really badly because consular legions aren't supposed to ever lose. doesn't matter how big the enemy force is. They don't lose. This, right, yeah. this is a big deal. So this is where the sources split and they don't really reconcile with one another anymore. So I'm going to try and be clear about where each thing is coming from. It's not as though they couldn't both be right. It's that sources would have to like leave out really important things for it to all gel. So we're not sure what happens in a lot of 72 uh, BCE for sure. So Lentulus's legion is, 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 uh, is defeated. Appian claims, and, and remember, he's the one that says that they want to attack Rome itself. Uh, Appian claims that Spartacus's forces turn and then also defeat Gallius's legion. So he defeats the second uh, consular legion as well. Okay. Plutarch doesn't mention this battle at all which would be wild to not mention. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> if true. Appian then claims that the consular legions regroup, join up together, and attack in a coordinated fashion against Spartacus. And Spartacus again defeats them. But the defeat is hard enough won that uh, he decides that he's not ready to actually march on Rome itself. And so Spartacus's forces begin heading south uh, to prepare, specifically to raid not only like food and things, but also to raid bronze and iron so that they can work them into better weapons, better armor, possibly some siege weapons. Okay. Again, Plutarch doesn't mention this two consuls working together battle, huh. <laughs> which is really weird, but... Remember, it supports Appian's claim that, number one, Spartacus might have be believed that marching on Rome was viable, and number two, that his march south would have been explained by this motivation. Got it. Okay. So Plutarch is going to say that uh, as soon as Lentulus was de uh, defeated, both of the consuls were relieved of their command by the Senate. So basically, come home, you're done. Yep. 
and that uh, Spartacus marched north, not south. Again, a weird thing to be different between the two sources. Critical difference, yeah. <laughs> but remember, Plutarch believed that they wanted to escape across the Alps into Gaul and disperse. So right. marching north would make sense right. at that point. But Appian never mentions going north. Then Plutarch states that there's a an army of 10,000 legions led by the governor of uh, Salpine Gaul, which is like the it's the the it's the Italian or sorry, the Roman territory just no, north of the Alps. That governor sent troops to basically stop Spartacus from marching over the Alps. They were defeated by Spartacus, but then the slaves marched south after this defeat, basically to winter in more amenable climates. So this is weird because Plutarch wants them to go across the Alps or believes that's what they want. Right. Has them go north, has them defeat an enemy force, which should clear up the way through the Alps, but then turn back south. And again, this okay. battle with the governor is never mentioned by Appian. So <laughs> it sounds to me very much like these two, Appian and, and Plutarch, are, are picking and choosing what they're reporting on. If mm-hmm. reporting is the word I want to use to support their own theories. Yeah. And it's hard to determine what actually happened because they're so diametrically opposed. Yeah. And it may not even be cherry picking. It may be wholesale, like inventing things. Fabrication. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, it's, it's really hard to say what happens over 70, 72 BCE. What I think is clear is that A, they managed to defeat consular troops and B, that they were basically able to have the run of the Italian peninsula for the entire year. Troops were unable to stop them from doing whatever it was that they wanted to do. The problem, as far as I see it, is what did they want to do? Please, somebody tell me what they were trying to do. Because, yeah, marching on Rome doesn't make sense. Escaping Italy kind of makes sense. But, I mean, only for uh, for, for the slaves that were captured from elsewhere it doesn't necessarily make sense for people who would have been you know born into slavery in uh the italian peninsula who would have been joining up with them maybe that was part of the split we don't know there's a lot of speculation to happen there right right yeah a lot of the modern conversation around this war is spent trying to square these two versions of events usually trying to find a synthesis between the two which makes some sense because what we're trying to do is like give equal weight to sources. But like, I don't know. Like, I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to go here. I'm not saying it's definitely not the best way to go. I'm saying that these th- these two accounts are so different that like, I don't know how to resolve them. I don't know if it's possible to resolve them. Um, and I'm not sure just picking a point in the middle is is necessarily going to get you the best version of events or the best recreation of events. This is where the type of history that I try to do on this show really breaks down. Because normally what I would be trying to do... No, I, I mean, for, for real, though. Because normally what I'd be well, trying to do is take the the types of... Uh, or or the, the balance of the evidence that we have and trying to come up with some sort of cohesive um, motivation, right? And there just mm-hmm. isn't one. Like, I can't tell you what they wanted to do. It's not there. 
I would have to do exactly what I'm accusing Plutarch and Appian of doing here and just make something up. Wildly speculating. <laughs> and it just doesn't work, right? Like it's not, it's not, it's not, you know, it's dishonest is, is what it comes down to. Yeah. The narrative break at best, you can do like a, a reasonable guess, but I mean, at that point you're just a guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Anyways, all of this comes back around together in well, essentially in the spring of 71 BCE. Again, so they they we we know we know from both sources that they end up in southern Italy at the end of uh, 72 BCE that they're going to spend the winter down there, probably raiding for resources again. That they've been generally successful other than the one uh defeat by or of Crixus's forces and yeah, that's about all we really can say for 100% sure. Until we get to the spring of 71 BCE, where the story comes back together, converges with Spartacus in the south, the Senate extremely alarmed by the fact that they haven't managed to get a handle on a situation that's been going on for more than a year now. Right. They decide to appoint a man named Marcus Licinius Crassus to end the conflict. Crassus had been fairly intimately involved in those civil wars that we talked about a decade before. He had served as a field commander under Sulla, and then after Sulla's victories, he had worked in Sulla's government. So he was pretty highly positioned in uh, Roman society. He also had practical experience with military command uh, and had been fairly successful. So they uh, gave him a praetorship and gave him not only the two consular legions, but a further six legions to go along with them. So he's commanding... They tend to just number these things by legions, and like the size of a legion just varies wildly. There's like an, there's just like there's an ideal number of soldiers in a legion, and then there's the fact that they were almost never a hundred percent at capacity. But he's commanding somewhere between thirty-two thousand and forty-eight thousand professional troops at this point. They're not messing around anymore. Yeah, no kidding. Crassus is also really well known for being an extremely harsh commander. Crassus is uh, he, he has he has a he has quite the reputation in, in Roman history. He's also, by the way, uh, sometimes in the running for wealthiest man in the world, like in all of history. Like he was extremely rich, uh, mainly real estate, which is a weird way of putting it. But it, it's true. He, he bought up and owned a lot of the land in Rome, often through really, really shady uh, dealings. You might remember this story. He's the one that had like his own fire brigade. And he would show up to house fires and basically uh, offer yes. to uh, either put out the fire and the people could sell them the land that the house was on and they could become tenants or he would just walk mm-hmm. away and let it burn, um, often coming back to buy up the land afterwards. Yeah, at a reduced price, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah, 100%. Anyways, he's also, if he's not enough of a jerk in that capacity, as a commander, <laughs> as a commander in Rome... In the Republican period, he's considered an, an, exceptional, an exceptionally harsh commander. He actually brought back the practice of decimation. Are you familiar with like the original conception of decimation? Uh, I feel like I was at one point, but you better remind me. <laughs> so the, the word in, in Latin comes from the same root as 10, right? Like DEC, mm-hmm. uh, same as you know decade, for example. 
Right. When, a, when an enemy force was defeated, they would go through and just summarily execute one in 10 of them as punishment. Well, Crassus brings this back as punishment for his own troops for defeat. Oh. Now, some of this is threat. Some of it is actually literally carried out. We, again, d- depends on the source. Uh, Plutarch will tell you that only 50 soldiers are killed this way. Only. Um, Appian will tell you that one of two things happened. Either one of the early battles, Crassus's forces are again going to be defeated by the gladiators. So either he punishes the entire the entirety of his forces with decimation, meaning that he executed over 4,000 soldiers. Yeah, 148,000. Okay. <laughs> or else he, he had the much more reasonable uh, reaction of when he got command of the consular forces, he only did this to that force. So, you know, we're only oh, okay. talking about like a thousand guys. <laughs> um, oh, is that all? Is that all? Anyways, regardless... It's very clear that his troops believed that he would do this to everybody, whether or not he have, he actually did, and he uh, he had a pretty firm grip over these uh, over these troops. They went hard for him. When when he takes control with this larger uh, this larger force, he starts by positioning uh, six legions on basically the only route north uh, from where Spartacus is holed up, and he splits off two of his legions gives command to, you know, one of his one of his senior commanders, basically tells him to go around and wait for his signal. The hope being that he's going to meet Spartacus in battle with the six legions, and that during the battle he can hit them from behind with the extra two legions, right? Okay. This commander gets a little too big for his britches, thinks, there's not that many of these slaves, and I can get glory for myself if I win, and attacked prematurely. So it was only two of the legions. And that force was defeated by Spartacus. That's the that's the point in the story where uh, Appian's not sure which defeat they were uh, decimated for. Okay. If it was the entire legion, it was the entire legion being decimated for this move. So anyways, the, the gladiators managed to, to defeat two legions and then continued north. I... I guess not realizing there's six legions waiting for them up there. Um, I guess maybe because they know that if they don't move, the six legions will move down. I'm not sure. But they engage mm, okay. They engage the main force, and this is the first major battle that Spartacus uh, loses to Roman legions. They finally managed to defeat a bunch of ragtag slaves um, with, <laughs> you know, the finest army in the world at the time. Uh, at, mm. at least 6,000 of the slaves are killed in this action. And Something of the magic breaks with that first defeat. Ah, uh, okay. Undefeated has a real nice ring to it. Let's put it that way. Oh, sure. Once you're up against like the reality of like losing some battles, things become a lot harder. There's a series of wins against the gladiators. They drive them further south into Italy, kind of trying to pin them against the sea a little bit. And yeah, Crassus's uh, campaign is going really well when there is a bit of a wrinkle. From the political side, I suppose you could say. Another prominent Roman commander, a guy named Pompey, is returning from a very successful campaign he had had in Spain at the head of a fairly large force. And it's kind of unclear whether or not the Senate asked him to go and help Crassus or whether he just kind of took the initiative on it. 
But Pompey, <laughs> okay. Pompey basically said, I'm going to help with this insurrection. And he starts marching through Italy. Crassus is furious about this because he's concerned that Pompey is going to take credit for winning this battle uh, or winning the this campaign. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's, he's done all the hard work in, in his mind, right? And he doesn't want Pompey politicizing this. They're kind of rivals in the, in the Senate at this point. Got it. He sees uh, Pompey as kind of a young upstart kind of thing. So Crassus starts kind of doubling his efforts. He wants to win before Pompey gets there so that Pompey doesn't have the chance to take credit. On the heels of all these defeats, Spartacus attempts to negotiate with Crassus. We don't know for what exactly. I mean, peace, obviously, mm-hmm. but like what the terms of that peace would be. Right. And essentially the reason we don't know is because Crassus refused. He <laughs> he said, nope, we're, we're going to do this the old-fashioned way. Uh, you don't get a, ne- a negotiation. Why? I'm not sure. I mean, there's so many dynamics at work here, right? Part of it is, you know, Crassus as a pretty brutal commander, right? He wants to win a war. Part of it is the social dynamic here, right? Crassus is uh, part of Rome's elite. He is, I mean, quite literally the one in the 1%, right? He's one of the wealthiest men in the world. And a slave is asking to negotiate with him. And what's a slave's demand going to be? So there's... there's right, yeah. At that point, you can't find common ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what they would even talk about if they could. So anyways, Crassus refuses... The slaves get word of Pompey coming, and this is like this shatters the last of the morale that they had. Uh, any cohesion that was there in the in the gladiatorial forces is gone. They start kind of like splitting off into uh, fracture groups, and thousands of them start being killed or captured, uh, defeated by Crassus's army because it'll be you know. 2,000 of them breaking off from the main force and then running into six legions worth of, of soldiers. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> the gladiators try to... They actually try to get away to um, Sicily. The uh, Spartacus tries paying a bunch of pirates to sail him and about 2,000 men to Sicily in the hopes that they would be able to kind of uh, spark an insurrection there as well. Because remember, the First and Second Servile Wars mainly were agricultural slaves in Sicily. He's seeing this as his best way forward to continue whatever it is he's trying to do. And honestly, it's not the worst idea. Sure. He has to go south anyways, uh, and, and it's shown to have been a volatile region. Only problem is he gets he gets bamboozled by the pirates. They take his money and then they don't sail him to Sicily. He's stuck in Italy, and that's more well, or less that's more or less the nail in the coffin. Like they they don't really have anywhere else to go at that point. So they they turn and they try and uh, break through the the Roman defenses. Some of them do get through and they actually end up getting captured in the north by Pompey, about 5,000 of them. Uh, he executes all of them uh, summarily. Spartacus turns and uh, there's a pitched final battle against Crassus's uh, forces, a uh, battle at Salarius River, and it's an utter defeat. They're routed completely. This is the point in like the movie where they get like captured and the whole I'm Spartacus thing happens. In reality, right. <laughs> in reality, uh, Spartacus is missing in action. We don't know what happened to him. 
uh, I mean, presumed dead. Uh, this isn't like a... I, I wasn't going to end that mm. sentence with like, and and he escaped <laughs> to, to 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 fight another day. No, that's that's probably well, not. He's still like that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, no, no. He's he's probably you know dead in the mud somewhere, and no one recognized him. Honestly, um, <laughs> the, the, it's far more likely. The rest of the slaves are captured. Everyone who is, the majority of them are are killed on the battlefield, though there's no quarter given, or or virtually no quarter given by Crassus. He wants this defeat to be overwhelming. He is not only suppressing a, a rebellion; he's sending a message. Right. Yeah. There's about six thousand slaves who are left standing at the end of it. Every single one of them is cru- crucified and displayed on the road between Capua and Rome as a message to any other gladiators who are getting ideas. Crucifixion at this point in time is very much the execution of slaves and bandits. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a low class execution. Got it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Crassus is not a kind man. And that's the end of the, uh, the third servile war. It's kind of one of those things where you get to the end and it's kind of like, okay, well, you know, what's, what's the point? Like what comes out of this? And again, I, I keep coming back to that whole, like, we don't know what they were trying to do. So it's hard to evaluate any sort of success or failure on the part of the, the slaves who revolted. Right. I, I mean, probably failure, but again, we're not trying, we're not sure what tra- uh, kind of change they were trying to affect. Right. Part of the, uh, part of, part of the consequence of that, especially in like modern depictions of this conflict is that whoever's making it tends to sort of foist their own uh, values onto uh, the slaves in terms of like what exactly it is oh, that they're fighting for. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, most intriguing, I think for me was like that sixties version of uh, you know, of the movie, the whole story. It's kind of important to understand in the context of the fact that that movie was written in secret by uh, a screenwriter known as Dalton Trumbo, who had been blacklisted for uh, alleged communist ties for over a decade in Hollywood. And uh, a lot of what's happening yes. in this uh, in this sort of like fight in, in the movie is sort of veiled allegory for the fight for you know, the removal of oppression against people with even uh, the slightest uh, socialist ties in Hollywood, right? Uh, It was an adaptation of a novel, and the novel had been written by an author who was serving jail time for communist ties. Like, it's it's inextricable from an understanding of, like, the the blacklist system in Hollywood, right? And and that's sort of what happens when you have a, a cause that's so poorly defined like this, but still so popular. It's really easy to take uh, your own uh, stuff and just like put it on it. Oh, sure. Yeah. From the, uh, from the Roman side of things, in terms of consequences, both Pompey and Crassus immediately leverage this victory, uh, as well as their like raised military power uh, into political mm-hmm. power. Of course. Yeah, they they basically park their militaries outside of Rome and go, you know, we sure would like to be consul next year. And, you know, they just sort of gesture at the implication of all those those (laughs) soldiers outside the walls of Rome. 
and part of that comes from, you know, those civil wars where uh, Sulla had actually marched into Rome with his own personally loyal soldiers, right? Right. Crassus was in a place where the consulship was not unreasonable. He had gone through all the things you were supposed to go through as a Roman citizen to become a consul. Pompey had not. He was too young. He hadn't served as uh, some of the other things on the... Uh, uh, they called it the Corsus on honorarium, the the sort of steps you're supposed to take before you become consul. But they gave it to him anyway, again, because of that implied threat, as well as his sort of heroic status as as part of putting down this uh, this revolt. Pompey would claim that he was instrumental in ending the whole thing to Crassus's great consternation. He did not like it at all. Do they serve together then? Yeah, they do. Ooh. <laughs> Everybody love that. Yeah. Well, what's more, this isn't the last time they work together because uh, I, I'm, I'm sure a number of listeners already know this, but 10 years later in uh, 60 BCE, Pompey and Crassus would align with uh, Julius Caesar to create what's known as the, the first triumvirate, which is the political alliance that advanced all three men's uh, uh, military and political power immensely uh, and would be kind of instrumental in Caesar's rise to power and the fall of the Republic. So their uh, participation in this war arguably uh, helped bolster that power to a point where they could uh, kind of finish off the Republic. Interesting. Now, not to say that, you know, it was, uh, you know, it's a direct line or anything like that. That's not how, you know, causality works. (laughs) But, you know, it's... (laughs) It's, it's a significant step in their own personal power because it's what puts them initially to the position of consul. The number of gladiators allowed to congregate in the city of Rome would be limited to uh, 640 at a time as a direct consequence of the gladiatorial uprising. They were worried that future gladiators would try and affect a similar uprising, and they pinned that as the number that could be uh, easily suppressed if need be. And are they cutting back on the gladiatorial program i guess i could call it at this point or is it just that you just don't want to have too many in one spot the latter yeah they just don't want too many in in one place they would tend to uh spread out the schools a little bit more uh limit contact in between uh gladiators uh to prevent scheming i guess now it's worth remembering that this entire revolt starts with 70 guys but yeah, that's not how it really exists in the mind of Romans, right? It exists as that force of like as much as 150,000 people at one point. Oh, yeah. When it became really problematic. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's kind of anecdotal evidence that people start treating their slaves a little bit better out of fear of something like this, which is kind of a meaningless metric. I mean, what does that what does that even really mean? Right. Oh, you know, well, what a nice gesture. <laughs> And slave ownership in general does tend to decline after this period. Now, there's a couple of things that you can attribute that to. There's a lot more preference for a sort of sharecropping model where they would pay freedmen to work their land rather than buying slaves outright. Slaves are seen seen as a little bit of a liability. And sort of, I get the impression that like the math works out on wages versus buying slaves. yeah. Yeah, but there is also like, a bit of a disruption, especially in in about another 50 years or so, when Caesar Augustus puts a limit on Roman expansion and those outside slaves stop coming in. So there's there's that consideration as well. Uh, Just the pool of people available uh, for slavery decreases. 
Got it. There's also, you know, a new constitution that's going to be enacted a hundred years out from this or more than a hundred years in 50 AD that starts giving uh, limited rights to slaves, uh, you know, the ability to um, accuse owners of, of crimes and things like very basic like that, that it's really like you can't you can't attribute directly to the servile wars, but like it is also kind of generally broadly indicative of changing attitudes towards slave ownership in in Rome. But again, all of that is really broad and really indirect. And it's hard to say that there's sort of like a, a, a massive sea change in attitude towards the ownership of slaves that's directly related to these servile wars. So it's it's kind of a, yeah. a bit of an unsatisfying ending to the whole thing. <laughs> well, I mean, I you know, as much as I'd like to say say otherwise, you know, that's that's kind of how it ends up working out, right? Like a bunch and slavery of slavery was ended forever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to say you know, and and then and then all the wealthy people in Rome learned a lesson. No, it's not. You know, the, they got they got more wealthy and more powerful as a result of all of this, and the, the republic collapsed uh, indirectly uh, because of this. Possibly even more directly than than any of the changes to the constitution that uh, that would have made life slightly easier for enslaved people down the road. But you know, that's that's about all we can really get without knowing more about who these people were, what their objectives were. And and as I said earlier, it really points to a, a real problem in availability of sources and in, you know, the, the, the implicit bias of those sources that we have to work with. It, it makes some sections right. of history really, really tricky to work with. And this is one of them. Yeah. And, and especially in like a um, time period as, you know, as far back as this, where it's like, okay, well, or is anyone on that, on like the slave revolt side, was, were they even literate? <laughs> could, could have, was it even possible mm-hmm. that they could have left sort of, uh, notes like the, the people who are, um, you know, in power, the victors, and, you know, they're the ones who are more likely to be educated and be able to sort of put forward these records of what went down, but they're all going to be biased. They're all going to sort of exaggerate how, you know, small their army was and how big the opposition was and how cool it was that they eventually won. Mm-hmm. That, that makes it, you know, even if we had records, could we trust them? Yeah. And, and I, I explicitly do not in this case, both of them are extremely yeah. unreliable. Um, I, I, I don't know how you read either of these sources without looking at it as uh, I have decided what I think the slaves wanted to do, and I have constructed this narrative in order to explicitly support my uh, assumed uh, position. This isn't this isn't useful information for us, and it makes it really really hard. So, anyways, right. This is as I, as I said, a little bit of an unsatisfying ending. But I thought it was uh, an interesting story to kind of point to. For for a number of reasons, but largely because I think that there are a lot of names out there in history that people just sort of have heard through cultural osmosis, I suppose. And I think this is one of those that people really may not understand or, or realize why the name Spartacus still exists in our, you know, cultural lexicon. 100% a sequel the Punic Wars, where all I knew was Hannibal crosses the Alps. I didn't know who that was or what that meant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, well, and that was one reason I was I was excited to get you on here. It was uh, 
yeah, it's, it's something of a follow-up and, and I do like doing follow-ups like that. So anyways, I think that's just about all I have to say about the Punic Wars. Any, any thoughts, any reactions? What did you, what, what, what how did this turn out in comparison to what you were expecting from uh, the topic or did you have any expectations coming in? Well, I, I didn't really, honestly. And it's because, I mean, all I know about Spartacus is the, the thing that you see in all the movies and cartoons and stuff like that, where they do the, I'm Spartacus, no, I'm Spartacus. And that's it. Like I haven't actually even seen the movie, let alone know the history behind it. Right. Um, so I, I didn't have a lot of expectation, but um, I kind of expected there to be some big reference to that and i think that uh what you were saying towards the end that you know we have these uh uh writers who were fighting against like uh like mccarthyism and, <laughs> and stuff like that red scare in in like the cold war who were using this romanticized backdrop to sort of push their agenda yeah and and that makes sense to me um but uh it is interesting to also talk about a topic where, you know, the the, the sources are out. No one really knows <laughs> what happened and the sources we have are completely, you know, in opposition to each other. And, and so we just don't know the answers, really, and we kind of have to speculate. It's made for an interesting HI 101 specifically where I know you love to focus on the narrative and when there isn't one it becomes real tricky. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're kind of at the mercy of our sources and and that's that's something that is is just such a stark contrast when well, I mean, especially moving from uh, all this all this early twentieth century stuff that I've I, I did with uh, with fascism, where like the sources abound, like every single player involved will tell you exactly what they think to the point where you're like, please stop telling me what you think. I'm so I'm so tired of hearing all of it. Like it's it's uh, you're 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 kind of spoiled for perspective uh, in a way because everyone has that easy access to a voice uh, of some sort. Um, whether, whether you want them to or not, uh, right, yeah. whereas with this ancient stuff, it's kind of like, well, I mean, often it's been written, you know, after the event ever occurred, you know, sometimes de decades after often it's, uh, somebody who's a patron of somebody who's directly involved. It's not just somebody writing a history of the third servile wars. It's somebody who's like grandfather fought in the third servile wars and they're running for office and you really got to make them look good in this thing. Uh, you know, something along yeah, those I lines. Uh, it's not, it's not always the most helpful and, and it really stretches the limits of what we can do in history. You know, I get a lot of, you know, oh, just, you know, no, no speculation, you know, stick to the sources, you know, be objective about history. And it's like, hey, you can't, it's just not, that's not how that works. This is an interpretive act. Um, this is a, this is a, um, an act of synthesis. And when you only have a couple of things to, uh, synthesize from your product is not going to be accurate. It is not going to be complete. And that's just all there is to it. So I don't know if it's ironic or if it's a, a, an interesting observation or anything like that, but I've often said that, um, uh, to you at least that, uh, doing the Punic Wars was my favorite episode to record because it's something I knew very little or nothing about. And it very much felt like a narrative. Like I, I've said before that I could see a movie being based on it. Oh, for sure. Um, 
it being very entertaining. So it has sort of this built-in narrative. And, and here we have a, a related topic that was even more recent where there was a movie made about it, but we somehow know less about it. Yeah. Well, and I mean, keep in mind, with even with something like the Punic Wars, like how bad is my narrative compared to... Um, the reality of it, because we, we're not we're not working off of Car- Carthaginian sources. Like we're not, you know, we we have a little bit of sourcing from Hannibal himself, but it's usually written by Romans. We're talking about a thing that is is so important to their, you know, national myth, right? Like the the founding of their of of their republic that. There, there are a lot of people who are writing about it in the same way, but they're also really incentivized to write about the same parts of it, right? And that's that makes it uh, uh, really difficult to uh, trust as well. Is it a good story? Yeah. Is it an accurate story? Hard to say. Right. There's yeah. a lot more sourcing, as you pointed out, but it's a lot more sourcing that's like in consensus, and all you know sometimes that's suspect as well, um, especially when it's that important for it to be a certain way. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah. So anyways, I think that's enough uh, blathering on about like the quality of sources and things like that. I'm sure some people enjoy it and I'm sure some people have turned it off by now. So let's uh, let's call it a wrap on the third survival war. Uh, I think this is just going to be called Spartacus. So people, as I said, click on it. But uh, yeah, I think that's I think that's it. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on today. It's always a pleasure to have you. Happy to be back. Thank you. The Third Servile War is a good example of how sourcing matters and how our understanding of historical events depends heavily on who wrote about them. It's also a great underdog story. It's pretty easy to root for a ragtag band of escaped slaves. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. For example, in this episode, I said that Cisalpine Gaul was just north of the Alps. That's incorrect. Cisalpine Gaul is to the south of the Alps, with Transalpine Gaul to the north of the mountain range. That correction and more are on the site. If there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, hi101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your interest, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.